0: Oh, uh-huh. my trumpet sound of Louis Armstrong, there with the Hot 7 in 1927, playing the 12th Street Rag. When I hear him solo like that, there's no doubt why I love jazz. That improvisational style has been part of the music since the early 20s. Take something, change it, make it your own, but keep the structure. It's beautiful. What a great way to work. So, hello. Welcome to Drawing Your Own Path podcast, episode number three. Awesome. Today I caught up with a really good friend of mine, Laura Vitale. She's a wonderful, wonderful creative artist and also now a very serious meditator. And I happened to catch her in her home in Los Angeles, having just got back from one retreat and about to go on another. Another three-week silent retreat, so she's very serious about her meditation this year and her creative work, and we have a good time talking about really some deep theory about creativity and where it comes from, a wonderful discussion, the kind I of really want to have on this podcast. We also talk about the podcast and what it means to try to gather a community of creative contemplatives and try to identify some of what our interests and concerns are in really looking back at the source of creativity so a lot of good material a lot of fun talk let me hear your feedback join us on facebook if you can facebook group drawing your own path love to have more interaction more people putting up work we have a drawing bee on tuesday nights at nine eastern where everyone joins in on a video chat and draws together and it's a lot of fun a lot of fun to meet other people who value and practice both creative work and contemplative work. So here's hoping you're making something today while you're listening to this, doing a little drawing. It's really great. So uh, sit back, relax, and uh, please enjoy the discussion with Laura Vitali. So thank you for doing this. I appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for asking me.
0: Uh, It's really great timing, I think, that uh, you're sort of in between retreats. Is that right?
1: It's right. I just got back a couple weeks ago from Insight Retreat Center in Santa Cruz, and I was there for a month. Before that, I was on retreat for two months, so it's really been a year of long retreat, and that's been the first time for me. And then I'm going to Tara Mandala in Colorado, which amazing is in the Tibetan tradition. So uh, that'll yeah. be a first. So where,
0: where are you now? Are you in?
1: I'm in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. I live here. Yeah.
0: I just started doing these. It just, uh, it just kind of happened and um, I'm really enjoying it. And it's really different conducting the interview than being interviewed. Mm-hmm. I found cool. that out. But it's also kind of a practice to find out about someone and listen and try to figure out the connections and that kind of thing. So I'm enjoying it. Great. Yeah, I'm trying to find this and define this group of contemplative creatives or creative contemplatives, which is out there. I'm starting with people that I find are really on the boundary to start with, Mm -hmm. and then I'll spread out in either direction as it goes. And I'm I'm inspired by Vincent Horn's work at the Buddhist Geeks. I think he did over 300 podcasts. Oh, wow. And uh, he kind of just started with what's Buddhism in America, something like that. So he was just interviewing anyone. Mm-hmm. And and everyone who was associated somehow with Buddhist practice.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember listening to a couple of podcasts he did with John Lurie about right. creative practice. That was
0: interesting. Yeah, those were really inspirational for me, for sure. And Great. um it did it did in the end define this kind of body of what what you know, it kind of what it was. So hopefully I can get that done for um even a smaller niche (laughs) Mm -hmm. creative creative well there's a lot of angles on it but yeah creative contemplative niche but it seems to me to start right away with people who are both practicing creative practice and meditation so Mm -hmm. you're right there you fit right there
1: okay yeah i was going to ask you what your kind of definition of it is right now it seems obvious, but I wouldn't want to assume. Yeah, it's pretty broad, I think.
0: Um, so the, there's the, there's certainly the daily practice aspect, I think, is really important, whether it's sitting or sitting and drawing. And then there's mm-hmm. the contemplative aspects of the creative practice. And then there are um, alternate practices besides just sitting that can be done as in flower arranging or calligraphy which are pr- mm-hmm. prominent, but then, it, you know, in walking meditation, and there's all kinds of ways to be creative and practice at the same time. And then there's mm-hmm. a whole kind of interpretive side, especially to the creative parts, which go into insight, personal insight. And so instead of getting it through, for instance, Vipassana, it's done through writing and articulating what's going on in the drawings. There's um, an insight part to that, and there's a therapeutic part to that. So there's kind of an art therapy aspect as well and oh. psychological aspect, So it's, it, it broadens out. And then there's a kind of a whole neuroscientific interest about what's actually happening, you know, when you're doing creative work. And then yeah. on the very, very lowest levels, the interest is where's the creative source? Where's it all coming from? So that's probably the underlies the whole thing.
1: Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's <laughs>
0: been my driving question for six or seven years. So this is, I guess this is part of that expression. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, and I have this thing about interviews um, because I listen to so many podcasts, tons of podcasts. Often they are with someone who's published something or who's promoting a book or been producing something professionally in the field. Now we thought, what about people that are just practicing, <laughs> just out there doing, you know, just being? And I want to talk to them too. You don't, I don't mm. think you have to have done well? You're doing things. I don't want to make it sound like you're not. You don't have to have had some product published or something like that to be you know to have interesting things to say so
1: thank you yeah that's interesting um because practice is such a big part of kind of letting go of the final result and being in the practice of it is such a big part of it too
0: yeah i think so i think so and it bears saying and it and and it bears um giving voice to people who are doing that and talking about that experience.
1: Yeah. I'm glad that that's your interest now and in speaking to me because that's very much where I'm at with, um, meditation, mindfulness, Buddhism, and art, um, really letting go of, for the time being of having a very clear final product or project proposal type, um, workflow. That's so interesting. Seeing what comes from that.
0: Because the the art world, especially when I'm interacting with it in New York, is really the opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so so focused on product and even grant uh, applications and residency applications often require a project.
1: Yeah, I found that when I was living in New York and pursuing um, art in a certain way It sort of requires you to want to define either define oneself specifically or propose a project in a specific way. And there's usually flexibility in how it um, comes about or what how it manifests. But even the act of just considering um, one's work, like as the product, instead of being in in a very unknown place. And seeing what comes from that is a, a different mindset. Um, I was at when I was at McDowell. Someone had a pretty interesting question that that put I thought this kind of contrast really clearly. He was like, "Are you a studio-based artist or a project-based artist?" And at the time, it really struck me, and I thought, well. I'm kind of a project-based artist right now, but I'm working toward shifting back to really being a studio-based artist. And those are just terms, but in my mind, or at least at the moment, I kind of define that difference to me.
0: Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and performance has really become quite prominent in festivals and um, biennials and such. What is the product? <laughs> it's really an experience. Right, yeah. So I'm speaking with Laura Vitale today. A friend of mine, an artist, a meditator. Can you tell us um, you know where you were born and raised and some some experiences you had growing up that have sort of pushed you in this direction?
1: So I was born in Los Angeles, actually where I live now, but only lived here until I was three. And then my family moved to Connecticut. So I grew up in New England and lived went to school in Rhode Island and lived in New York City, and then grad school in Virginia and eventually made my way back to L.A., where I've been living for four years now. And I've been making art the whole time, and it's manifested in lots of different forms, different phases, um, whether it was before grad school, during grad school, after, after grad school, or growing up, I was always making projects and kind of keeping myself company and Passing the time and exploring I know you, the world.
0: You've um, worked in um, sound and and visuals as well. Growing up, what was was it primarily making physical objects?
1: It was really um, making physical objects. Yeah, I I drew a lot. I have lots of lots of memories of spending time drawing as a kid and doing what I would call projects. I would just make up a kind of premise of something that I wanted to do and spend hours working on it and a lot of time trying to I I think a lot of people maybe who drew as a kid have memories like this my first experience is trying to draw from life being so frustrating and really really
0: I have that experience
1: (laughs) yeah it's really striking and I I think about it and it, it has a relationship to like a Buddhist understanding of perception or a lot of different understandings of perception. Like the frustration is real, but I, I see it not only just as, you know, a childlike frustration at not doing something well right away, but this kind of shock of like the the complexity of abstracting the real yes, world. Yes, no, that's that really good. Yeah, that it's not really as it seems. It's not as it
0: (laughs) seems, I think. Yeah. And I think uh, there's a feeling um, when you see something, perhaps you want to draw that looks extraordinary, that there's so many dimensions, emotional dimensions and and temperature and things like that, that when you put that line down, even if it resembles the visual appearance still, there's a lot that you feel that's missing, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's this kind of separation that happens like right now I'm looking at a bag of mine that's on the floor. And I I can imagine as a kid, I would look at it and I would see, you know, bag and want to draw like just want it to come out of my hand like a bag that right. just feels and looks just like that, what I'm looking at. But I would look at it and be like some squiggles. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not it. And that kind of wraps up in a lot of ways a lot of the complexity in communication in any medium in any form like there's it's impossible to completely represent reality sure. so then a lot of the the fun can come in and accepting that and seeing what what comes from exploring from there
0: it's true it's it, when you put emotions down into words right and that's why poetry can be so interesting because the words can have many meanings in the same sentence and push you in mm-hmm. different ways So there Mm -hmm. there is a fun to it, right? Even in the rendering, when rendering's well done, you can say a lot by the way the lines are positioned, the way the shading's done, or the way it's positioned on the page, or how it's put in composition. So Mm -hmm. the the thing itself becomes uh, equally expressive or whatever. So so there's your bag, and then your drawing of the bag, and it may have really nothing to do with the bag in the end, but it's its own thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think for for my relationship to art right now, at least I love feeling that freedom on the artist side of really exploring that gap between what's being represented and the, um, the medium of rep- representation and feeling like a freedom within there and a playfulness.
0: Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. the, the the choice of medium as well. Well, you sound like you're being very fluid in your choice right now, of wh- how you, what you represent and how you represent it.
1: I've been, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel that the direction that I'm moving, I've been keeping it very simple in terms of medium media, right. For the past few months, I've been drawing pretty much exclusively.
0: Um, a pencil on paper, pastels.
1: Um, it's been pen with a pretty limited color. Uh, palette and some mm-hmm. gouache so is that how uh-huh. you say it gouache
0: i say gouache, gouache but you could probably say it
1: so pen. i don't and, really
0: know <laughs> pen, and gouache. pen and gouache and on on cards on paper absorbent paper
1: i started out in the sketchbook and then i filled the sketchbook um with ideas like one idea per page and didn't draw anything bigger until i had done a lot of exploring that way. And then I moved to larger sheets of, I think it's arches or Stonehenge. Right. I like the the kind of meatier texture of that paper.
0: Kind of a printmaking paper, maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. Thicker paper. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And your choice of, is there a subject or is it abstract? How, How are you working forward?
1: Yeah, so that's the kind of interesting thing. So the direction that I'm moving or the next chapter would is going to be sketching from life and with that sort of playful approach that i was just describing but what i've been doing most recently is not that it's um kind of setting up constrict or rules and playing with pattern and mm. um composition. something systematic a little systematic yeah it's been very complimentary to how much meditation i've been doing because mm. i there's a there's a kind of exploration and playfulness in the coming up with a structure or a pattern to expand on and then in the process of actually making it there aren't many decisions to be made at all mm. so I, it's pretty compatible with being on retreat if I'm going to draw when I'm on retreat, or or use it,
0: yeah, in I found in daily a life. systematic uh, systematic practice um, relates a little bit to like mantra practice. Hmm. That you just kind of have a have a system and you repeat the system, and somehow by that repetition you get lost in awareness, or you drop into awareness, and the, and your body and mind are just kind of following the system as it goes. Do
1: you find something like that? I do sometimes and I think that is a lot of how it felt earlier in my life to draw it was I realize now really a concentration practice where you know the rest of the world would drop away and I'd really focus for a long time on what I was drawing and then it was it's been interesting to bring that approach in and and really feel the difference in concentrating that way while drawing and the more open awareness approach to meditation outside of drawing. And so it's been a kind of, uh, I wouldn't say project, but a practice for me to keep a kind of open awareness of everything that's happening in body and mind while doing, while making a drawing that, um even if the content isn't personal, if if it's just if it's a pattern.
0: Right, yeah, I was gonna ask. In that case a pattern, right. So so self-observing during the during the process, staying aware of awareness and keeping your mind on the hand and the motion of the hand and the contact with the paper.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So for a while I was I was using it a little bit like you had described, you know, if I noticed my mind-wandering, I'd bring it back to the drawing and using it kind of like an anchor in that way. Mm-hmm. But then that started to feel more like a constricted, like a contracted way of handling right. attention. So having the steadiness of the pattern and, and just watching where, where the mind goes while drawing has been right, right, interesting. right,
0: okay, good, yeah, I love that. So you can you can see the thoughts uh, arise around the repetition, and then watching those move. Mm-hmm. And what's your feeling about um, what comes up? Because I've I, I've worked with this in many different ways. In that situation, when I've sort of access flow and I'm in it, and I'm say the observer, and the thoughts are coming up. Um, in some cases, and in some um, Ways I've been trained, the idea is to observe it, move through and let it go. And in other cases, especially in my own practice, becoming somewhat involved in the content or I'm looking at the content at the same time. Not necessarily getting involved in the story of the content, but paying attention as well to the content, mm. thinking about what thinking about what I'm thinking about or watching what's coming up. Because sometimes it finds expression, especially when I'm drawing improvisationally in the marks.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I have been pretty much letting thoughts come and go because in my, in practice right now for me, the kind of letting go of believing one's own thoughts or my own thoughts is really great practice. Um, Mm. and watching, so watching moods and thoughts come and go is really interesting and not in Kind of watching, actually, sometimes it feels like the patterns that I'm drawing are describing a similar process that the, like, the thoughts that (laughs) that are happening. So it feels like there's a mirror happening that's not in the content, but it's in the sort of process. Um, For example, I have this one pretty large drawing where the premise that I set up was to It was really simple, drawing horizontal lines really narrow close to each other with a very thin pen. And that's all I had set up, and I was curious what will it look like and feel like to fill the entire page with that process. And that's more or less what I've done with a lot of drawings. And Because it's it's interesting to, to have an idea of what something might look like and then to actually yes. feel what it looks like in the whole page. It's it's a little bit like the difference between having an, I, an idea of what an emotion feels like versus a really embodied sense of what an emotion feels like.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. The description of meditation versus meditating.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in this, the... It, it turned into this, what felt to me, really beautiful waves. Like it looks like an ocean and mm. they would come and go. And the, my, and it was caused by the irregularities in my own body drawing these horizontal lines. And so I would see these patches of really smooth lines and then they'd bunch up and it would be kind of wavy, which were, I guess, technically mistakes but they looked beautiful when you step back. Sure, sure. So I was feeling like that's a metaphor for um, working with anything that comes up in meditation. Like uh, if I... The sense
0: that emotions come in waves, for instance.
1: Yeah, and in the moment, if something is really difficult, it can feel like it's wrong. But in retrospect, it can be a sort of beautiful period of insight happening. You
0: know? No, that's great. The the simultaneity of the visual uh, and the thought and the emotion and the, also the reading that you're making on it, that that I look for all the time in the drawing. I think that's a real sign that, uh, that you're right in the moment when you're making the drawing, because I feel like the unconscious wants to say something or wants to describe or mirror itself in the drawing. Uh-huh. And so the idea that you would be you know, peacefully observing the various waves of thought as they come up, and the drawing reflecting that is so perfect.
1: That would be wonderful if that's what happens. Yeah, I don't know if it's I a one. It, to, it, if, I don't <laughs> know if it's a one-to-one kind of thing always happening, but that's that's kind of what I had in mind when I set up for now. These pretty restricted framework, so because things have been very busy. I was in New York. I came and go. Like life was a little bit unsettled so i thought i don't i don't know if i can really get out of the way that much if i'm drawing something that has content but if i just follow some um sort of restrictions then that'll that'll get me out of the way and something will come through inevitably because i'm you know a human doing a thing <laughs>
0: yeah no exactly that's it It's a human doing a thing that's well said yeah, something will come through. And I do think it mirrors, I think it mirrors everything. And it's only sometimes that you can see it when you get it pared down like you're doing into some, some very simple form in which you can really be in that state and see the state that that you can, you can recognize that it's coming through. But if you draw, for instance, or if I draw, for instance, uh, on an airplane, you know, and then I look back, what I see is not the content of the drawing I made, but like my stress, for instance, about the... Mm plane flight in the line Mm,
1: interesting it's
0: it's imprinted over the line so i often like to draw in unusual situations and then come back later and see what was imprinted Mm -hmm. in a way that i that i can't understand necessarily at the time Mm -hmm. and even sometimes there's something very deep and i think uh, you know going on uh, i'm worried about something a month from now that's floating around in the back of my mind and then later when i look at the line i see that i was ignoring it but it's in there
1: yeah yeah And do you feel, I feel, and maybe this is what you were describing, it can kind of be in any form, but in an artwork, I can feel when something has been made with that kind of uh, presence or that kind of um, open intention.
0: I I do think it transmits. I do. And I I think that's why art is the kind of thing that you really want to see in person. You want to be in the presence of the piece. And, mm-hmm. and being in the presence of the piece is so important rather than seeing it, say, in a reproduction. Mm-hmm. You know, painting just can't come through because there is something in the very subtlety of the edges of the, you know, that, that's been accepted or it's been put down by the artist that's transmitting as much as the what the picture is a picture of.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, artists work in so many different ways, but I definitely pay such close attention to the texture of the way something sits on the page or the way edges meet in a really specific way. And that wouldn't necessarily come through in a reproduction, although it might. Um, But yeah, definitely.
0: Right. But being right in the room with the, with the, with the painting. And then of course there's the whole, of course there's the whole scale factor. Mm -hmm. And the, idea of the piece of paper. Well, I draw on five by six cards, and then I draw on 22 by 30 sheets, and it's a very different experience making them and seeing them.
1: Mhm. Oh, yeah. I That's really interesting. I was working, I filled a sketchbook with little sketches of ideas. Some of them I, I worked quite a while on, but they're sketches in that they're small. And then I chose a few of them and expanded them to much larger sheets. And it was really interesting. I was very curious to see how it would feel different on, the, on a larger sheet which is you know it's always different it's always it's it's different and scale you know, the, is really the, the, big yeah, the making
0: the making of it the making of it at that scale right the 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 amount that your arm has to move versus your wrist mm-hmm. changes lots of things changes the way you think about it and your fatigue and how much you can do in a certain time
1: yeah definitely like I I learned that drawing horizontal lines is on a big sheet of paper is pretty physically demanding.
0: <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah, it's a really yeah. great exercise. It's a beautiful exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I draw on five by six cards and then I'm going to make a four foot sculpture out of it, something like that, that's going to take six weeks to two months to complete when it's done, I've taken to just draw redrawing with my hand on the surface, just to kind of put that spark back into it because the, production takes such a long time that in a certain way the spontaneity just kind of gets out of it it's all finished Mm. it's all so smooth and i want to sort of revitalize the surface in some way
1: Mm. interesting yeah that's definitely why i've been drawing because i love I, i mean you mentioned i've worked in sound and video and performance which is all really amazing different media to explore different aspects of human experience or um the senses and drawing, in a way, for me at least, is one of the most lightweight. I guess writing could also be hmm. just as lightweight, um, but it's pretty immediate. Drawing, you,
0: cut, you cut through it, exactly. You cut through it with drawing. It's just hand to paper.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Even, even in writing, there's got to come come through some filter that turns it into words, I think, which is, slows it down even just slightly above the... I mean, there are, there is flow in writing for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, something about those immediate marks on the paper also, I mean, I love to write, but uh, in uh, in drawing, um, you can infer so much if you're doing representational drawing with very few marks, and I'm always fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like some, someone who can write a description in a few words that's very accurate.
1: That can evoke a certain angle of something in a very expressive way, same with working visually.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, so... Um, cool wow we went great deep into it there which was wonderful okay and we uh, we're, we're going to circle back around now <laughs> okay <laughs> that was that was great i didn't it was it went more or less exactly where i wanted to go without prompting so that's really good Okay. that that in, inner experience of creating is so important and so and it's really i think as we line these up we're going to see some some commonality among a lot of artists about about Certain, Well, I call them crossroads. There's certain places we all visit and then how we leave from those crossroads, you know, how we leave from flow and where do we look at the thoughts? Do they become the content? Is it about observing the passing of it? So that's all really good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we can all sort of get an idea of the map out there, creative map out there. I want to push it out further.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: Okay, so um, let's see. We crossed. We didn't cross pass, but we, but in time, we crossed pass at Brown because we were both undergraduates there. Is that right?
1: Right. Yeah, I graduated yeah. in 2007.
0: Okay, I won't say when I graduated. Okay. 885, <laughs> <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was class of 85, so mm-hmm. I was a little e- there before a little
1: bit. Yeah, there's um, a strong alumni connection.
0: Yeah, Brown students. I so, it's th- they talk about a vibe. I think there's a real sort of creative, uh science vibe there little little analytical creative crossover going on there and now they have a strong center for contemplative studies so
1: yeah have you intersected with it at all it was just being created when i was there and i had some friends who were involved and i've just heard about it a bit since but it's I haven't really I haven't
0: interacted with them. Yeah, I would would like to know know more or do more with them, uh, but I haven't pursued it yet. But they they did an interview online with Daniel Ingram at one point, which I thought was a beautiful interview. Great. Okay. And um, uh, Willoughby Britton, who works there, has written about um, uh, spiritual emergencies, like people that fall into um, meditative experiences from, say. I think she cites like people who marching in the army. You know, they are marching in ranks and things like that, doing repetitious things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's interesting. That's she, called a spiritual
1: at, emergency.
0: Well, it's, people call her up. You know, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> Somehow, she's, oh. the, she's a go-to person for. I don't know how that's worked out, but I've heard her talk about it.
1: Oh, okay, I I know I've heard the term spiritual emergency, mm. and I I kind of thought it would be something. Where it might look like someone's having a psychological emergency or breakdown, but at the core of it might be like a spiritual disconnect or something that can be helped yeah, by I think accessing that's I think spiritual. that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well
0: people immediately assume that they're that they're yeah, they're having a psychological issue. But in fact it might be more existential than that. It might be more internal, spiritual. Yeah,
1: it's definitely the the case for me, not to get too personal, but it's been very valuable to understand buddhist teachings. it brings a lot of peace
0: i think so it happened it happened for me and i'll i'll i'm happy to be personal myself, <laughs> but to <laughs> 2008 i thought it was going crazy basically i thought the world was coming apart and uh and um it was only through accessing some teachings on dependent arising and such that i sort of put it together oh i'm curious uh, to
1: know more in more detail what the what which part of dependent arising like made made things click. It's
0: yeah, I, you know, I was drawing um, the imagery that was coming up in my drawing were cycles. They were all cycles, and they were these. I called them cycles. They were these. Um, uh, they're not really rectangles, but rectangular-looking uh, boxes, little little flattened cubes, and they were all sort of resting on each other, and they one would be on top of the other and go all the way around in the circle. Mm-hmm. And then then there was in fact a river on top of that. And uh, I I came to understand um, the no-self through these drawings and how, you know, one couldn't exist alone. They had to, for instance, a river. What's a river? Uh You know, it's made up of little inlets and little, uh, little rivulets and streams and then... It's always changing, it's always moving and it's changing the landscape at the same time and then it's flowing into the ocean and then that water's coming back up. Yeah. So it's it's part of a whole cycle. Right. Yeah.
1: Everything is just a process.
0: It's all dependent on so there's nobody that makes the river flow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no one that no one that designed the river. It sort of followed its thing and it changes all the time and it's the water, you know, never twice the same river. Right. It's never the same. So, um then I begin to understand that I'm constantly changing. My life is constantly changing. I was in a lot of change at the time, but I was able then to more accept as it moved through me that I, I didn't have to cling to and hold on and control all the things around me.
1: Yeah, that's really a valuable thing, too. It's not easy to let go, but once I realize at a certain level, you know, impermanence is one of the laws of existing, it doesn't feel like something's wrong necessarily when life is really shifting or time is really passing or phases of life are really ending. It's like, Oh, this is how it's supposed to be.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's not me. I'm just, you know, the, the, the atoms that are in my body or weren't here before and won't be after a while. Mm-hmm. So it's like the river. It's just, I'm just, this thing I call me is moving at the same time and changing. All the yeah. Time.
1: Yeah. And you can see the beauty in it too. It's great.
0: Yeah. So we went to Brown. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: <laughs> I got in tangent again.
0: <laughs> and, and then uh,
1: talking about the Dharma and can go in all kinds of tangents all the time. Thanks for keeping you know, this it reined in. Uh,
0: this is ideal for my uh, idea for this podcast. This is really where where I hoped it would sort of move around to, um, as I get comfortable actually letting it happen. So, uh, and finding people like you to talk to. Uh, so then we cross pass actually in time in at VCU. Right. So it was a new media department at VCU uh, run by Pam Turner, and she invited me down. I was having a show in New York to um, do some teaching, and I think she thought I was going to teach software and computers more, although I did a little, Uh, but I had already turned at that time, that was by 2011, I think, uh, to looking at the connections and trying to discover the source of creativity. And uh, so I turned it on you guys <laughs> as graduate students, and I ran this seminar called, uh, I think it was called Source of Creativity, and that was my first time to actually try and articulate, you know, those connections. Mm-hmm. And you were doing um, some amazing work with plaster oh, yeah. and tanks of water,
1: mm-hmm. really exploring, really getting into it with with exploring plaster, hydrocal plaster as a medium in all different
0: ways. You know, you- yeah, you were making sculptural works and I think it started did it start with the
1: sculptural it works. It started with sculptural works. I was creating shapes to run sound through and and play with how they resonated in different ways. So it wasn't just straight visual sculpture, but I was I had in mind that piece um, the collaboration with David Tudor and John Cage. I think originally with Andy Warhol to Rainforest where they have household objects are kind of um, assemblages of different objects and they attach transducers to them and run sound through them. And you can put your ear up to it and hear sounds or from a distance it ends up kind of feeling and sounding like a rainforest. But that idea that objects can emanate sound or sound can be transformed by going through an object was, was interesting to me. So I was thinking about what if I didn't find an object but I created an object and played with the shape there and then it transformed into this whole other direction when I accidentally dropped a piece in water and had a happened to have an underwater microphone handy and listened to the sounds of the water kind of rehydrating this very dry plaster and that sounded really evocative and like kind of crickets or digestion or an evening meadow or all different and sometimes it sounded like a voice. So this really varied thing. So I got very deep into making lots and lots of recordings and playing with just listening to plaster <laughs> underwater.
0: Yeah, I thought they was they were really they were amazing pieces and surprising. Totally surprising. Mm. And they offered so much possibility because you can think of it as the water entering or the bubbles leaving. And I always thought of the air, the bubbles escaping through the little pores of the of the plaster were creating all different sounds because the plaster, when it dries at different speeds, I guess, has different porosity, something like that.
1: Yeah, and there's uh, different, I think it can cure in different ways. There can be different densities. So there's all kinds of irregularities that happen, Depen- you know, if it's a thin piece yeah. of plaster or a big chunk.
0: And that changes, uh, would change the tone and the speed of the uh, of sound. Yeah, but
1: not in any way that I ever figured out how to control, which is for the best because it was a beautiful accidental discovery and it was nice to keep it kind of loose in how I recorded it and presented it.
0: And it was amazing that way. Yeah, beautiful kind of um, another, again, following your intuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, paying attention to your senses and using that as a way to make discovery. I think that was all shown really well there. Mm, Thank
1: you. Yeah, I think there's something there too about in in like the link of dependent origination, there's the ideas and stories we create around what the things we interact in the world with do, do and are. So there was a letting go of like what plaster is. It's such a basic elemental sculptural material that has a pretty standard way of being used. And through an accident, I let go of that kind of perception I had of what, and story I had about like what plaster does <laughs> and discovered something fun through that.
0: Yeah. 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 So rejecting the label and really going to the material itself and see- seeing what its qualities were. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a really great project. And then I saw you, um, maybe it was a year or so later, and you were up at at a uh, project space in New York, down in Soho. Mm -hmm. And you'd sort of reset up the plaster down there. I think you were in residence down there for a while.
1: Yeah. It was at this wonderful organization called Recess. They're still in that space, as I understand it, doing great work. And I had recreated... It's a storefront space where artists take up residence for a couple of months and interact with the public. So I had created a space for people to listen to plaster underwater on their own and record themselves mimicking the sounds or doing whatever they wanted. And then I was also creating more shapes. And the loose premise of it beyond the material exploration and sonic exploration was this idea of loosening up, or kind of comparing the cre- a creative process of exploration with a scientific method process of exploring the world.
0: Exactly. So I, yeah. There's a, and I remember now uh, that you had a little uh, booth or something, and I recorded my voice there. I think. Mm-hmm. At one
1: point. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty funny.
0: Yeah, that's interesting project, and I always love the um the, again the systematic approach, but it really in in that way scientific maybe as well that you had a you had a little um method and a hypothesis, and you were putting the data together, but it was all sort of toward artistic ends.
1: Yeah, well, kind of what I had in mind really was that I'm doing experiments, but from the perspective of experimental science they were really bad experiments like really bad methodology there's no control but that's what makes good art in a way so i was like kind of feeling a little bit pushed back against um the the limits of scientific method
0: at at the time uh in um virginia yeah i felt i was kind of out on the fringe and even when you were in new york I don't think, did you have much of an inkling of doing meditation at that time? Had you gotten into it or thought about it?
1: I was just getting into it. So it was 2011 that you did the seminar at BCU? I think so. That would have been the semester that I discovered um, Buddhism, or that I really started practicing. I had been aware of teachings and very curious for many, many, many years. But I started going to a sitting group with a friend in Richmond. It would have been right around then. And um, while I was in New York, getting listening to more and more Dharma talks, getting more and more understanding of what these teachers were really talking about and getting ready to start going on retreat for the first time in 2013.
0: Right. Yeah, so um, t- take take me through, if you will, um, your retreat experiences, because I really haven't, I, I, I've talked to you a little bit about them, but I haven't really heard that much. And I'd like to hear, um, what you were thinking when you first went and what the experiences were like and sort of wh- where they brought you.
1: Sure. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I know. What
0: <laughs> Even just to, what, what made you decide to go for the first time?
1: Um, it's kind of like the process for Everything is kind of the same. It's a feeling of intuition. Um, I think that's what draws a lot of people to uh, meditation and Buddhism or spiritual practice. It's a sense of like, that feels true. I don't really get it, but I want to learn more about that because that feels freeing or something about that feels true.
0: Do you, do you think do you think it's similar to when you're... Um bring a piece of artwork
1: along? Yeah, I think there's something about, you know, when decisions have to be made, it's like, does that feel more free or more less self-conscious or more beautiful? Or is that, oh, no, that what, that... what is that feeling? I think for me, it's is one thing kind of exploring the unknown with an attitude of, like, friendliness and curiosity, or is it following a feeling of something that's either predicted or a little bit fearful or a little bit... Um, constrained
0: and is it is it harmony is it safety is it peace is it some some interesting resonance of feelings that tells you to move
1: forward i don't know sometimes it's really scary (laughs) because it's unknown or haven't done something before or there's a little bit of a risk if it's a little bit public or if it's a you know a big time commitment and something might not turn out very well something about what you just said brings to mind, like sometimes when I've gone on retreat, people come back. When I come back, people who don't practice are like, oh, you must be so relaxed. It's like, no, not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So.
0: Right. It could, could be a week of like turmoil and things coming up all the time mm -hmm. or just lack of focus and frustration. Lots of things can happen. Yeah.
1: So much can happen and it's pretty out of, out of anyone's control. I learn more and more that the mind really is like watching the weather. I don't have control over it, but I can learn about it. Hmm.
0: So, um, yeah, where did you first go on retreat?
1: The first place I went on retreat was actually the place that I just got back from, Insight Retreat Center in Santa Cruz. It had just opened the year before, so in 2012 or maybe 2011. The teacher, or the guiding teachers there, Gil Franz, Dawn, Andrea Fella, have been practicing and teaching for a long time. But they put, they created this amazing center that's has a lot of support from the community and is run by volunteers. So with really wonderful retreats, and it's all by donation. So you donate for the center and for the teachers, and there's no fee besides that. And I had been listening... When I was looking to get more understanding of Buddhist teachings, I found, I think it was Dharma Seed, and was just listening to a bunch of different teachers and seeing who resonated. And Gil's voice and the way he was teaching, I really loved. And so I listened to so many of his Dharma talks. Actually, while I was doing that residency at Recess, and then Mm -hmm. I happened to look him up and see, oh, he has a center in California. I'm about to move to California. Maybe, maybe I'll go on a retreat.
0: yeah perfect yeah i've heard many many of his talks the same way and i do resonate with what he says and the way he says Mm -hmm. it so must have been wonderful it must have been so relaxed (laughs) it
1: was so blissful (laughs) no it was the opposite it was so hard (laughs) it was so so hard i remember him saying something that still sticks with me and i think he knew it was my first retreat and a few other people there he was like when you sit for the first time, it can be a little bit of a culture shock. You, like, see what's really going on clearly um, for the first time sometimes. And I think that was true a little bit. I wouldn't say it, was, it wasn't It was difficult in that it was harmful in any way. It was just really the first time I'd been in an environment where it could really hold whatever comes up um in the mind or in someone's experience mm. so yeah i mean probably anyone who's gone on retreat could uh, have a similar <laughs> story of how mm. how it can be both really amazing and also a very challenging experience
0: can be for sure mm. and uh, that's kind of that's that kind of healing part the kind of clearing out part i think that comes up those things that are that are um buried in deep or or suppressed to have a chance you know when you get unloaded and and are open and friendly to them enough <laughs> allowing them they come out they yeah come
1: out. yeah developing a friendlier and friendlier attitude toward one's own inner life allows things to come up and there can be culturally there's such a habit of repressing negative or afflictive emotions like that's sort of taught to be the way to deal with them but Buddhism teaches a very different approach which is to watch and observe things as they arise and learn from that and investigate it and this amazing thing happens once you observe something enough it, it lets go (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Nicely put. What do you find is the crossover then when you're in the studio and when you're doing your drawings? Do you, do you find when you're working the, the, that you can achieve similar state that you're allowing things to come up even though the hand's moving, that you're working in the same ways?
1: That's really my goal. And in the past couple of years, I've been reapproaching a a kind of full-fledged drawing practice I've I've been drawing continuously for a long time but I feel like I'm kind of um, bringing di- disparate parts together like making a body of work that's really really expressive drawings and then a, a, this recent body of work that's pretty meticulous patterns and then representational work and so ideally I would have a kind of free like a toolbox to Kind of explore whatever's coming up in the moment. For now, they've been—it's sort of like a refuge um, to be mm.
0: beautiful. Yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. To be just to be in the process, to be in the moment of the drawing, right?
1: Yeah, it's like there's very few decisions to be made. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, and I'm just just drawing, like. Just, just drawing. drawing that's a good way yeah. to say it
0: yeah yeah and don't you think when when you're when you're fully engaged with the hand and the, the physical physicality of the movement and and the attention visual attention that you have to pay that that uh, inner voice just kind of qu- quiets down kind of goes away
1: yeah it's wonderful when that happens and making decisions on any level like whether it's a small mark or a big um color or compositional decision that's when really wonderful artwork gets made i think
0: i think so too yeah. yeah and the and the thing is that you that you're you're in that meditative state and you can recognize it for having done the sitting and the practice and then when the bell rings and the time is done, you have this record of it, you know, you have this kind of beautiful object that's kind of come about Mm. through that process. That's one thing I really love about that making process.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to look back on over a period of time, what, what's gotten made because it can feel like every decision, like I'm having so much control over what I'm making and then looking back on it over time, Something else always comes through. It's really nice to see.
0: Yeah, I think so. And for me, many um, resonant layers come through, and then it's just a, a, a building a sensitivity to those threads of our inner dialogue or our, our physical life or our age or where we live to sort of read them from that. Sometimes you have to move from a place to see how the place you were in is impacting what you're doing. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And so there's that layer on it, and then there's your age is on it, and then whatever you're social situation is either sort of for me, they're all stacked resonantly in there. Somehow. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes not in harmony and sometimes
1: in good. Mm-hmm. harmony. I think I'm not sure that I, I don't really aim to get into a meditative, meditative state when I'm making art or when I'm working. I, I think there's a parallel there, but I'm not, I wouldn't say that I go into it with the same motivations as I do when I'm doing say formal sitting practice i will say that there is definitely a like a lightness and a playfulness to just approaching the world in a very immediate sensory way that has a lot of relationship to meditation but i'm always very keyed into into that when i'm drawing or making making art
0: yeah, that's good. So there's a little crossroads, but they're also distinct practices. They also have their, and I think what you said about intention is really true. Mm-hmm. When I sit down and just, in sort of a just sitting, I'm, I'm, my intentions are one way. And when I'm making drawings, yeah, usually I'm, I'm focused another, <laughs> one on some more traditional teaching of say, following my breath or watching my thoughts and the other really on what's happening at the end of the pencil. Mm-hmm. Just being the observer of that, but yeah, it can change. I think that it's interesting. Little the little programs you'll run one way or the other, as far as your intention goes. And the more I read and the more different traditions I look at, I see that that's really the one of the great controlling factors. Intention. About. Mm-hmm, yeah, definitely. I think. Yeah, I think intention is where where the teacher comes in and helps you set it and knows from that set intention what should arise and can steer you that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that kind of thing that you read. We we're talking about how you, re- when you read a great painting, mm-hmm. you can kind of, you can kind of see where the freedom in or what the intention was.
1: Yeah, isn't that amazing?
0: It's kind of amazing. Yeah, really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're gonna go on retreat soon, is that right? You're gonna go yes. back June 1st or something like that.
1: Yeah, I leave town on the 31st, and then um, the retreat starts. June 3rd.
0: We're sitting here, I guess it's the 26th of May, 2017. So yeah, in another week or so, you'll be back. Be back in retreat. On retreat. <laughs> so, but between now and then, what's like daily, when you're in Los, An- Los Angeles, what's daily studio practice, contemplative practice like? What's your day like?
1: It's been pretty inconsistent um, because I've just been, I'm just back for a couple of weeks, but I I work for, I'm working on a job Um, for someone in the valley. So I'll I'll work a few days a week and then generally in the mornings I'll sit and draw kind of in in a kind of informal back and forth way um, sitting and drawing. So for kind of the first half of the day feeling that out. I don't keep a very strict like draw for 45 minutes at this time of day all the time. But I did on retreat so my day-to-day in LA is participating in the Sangha here, sitting, drawing, reading Dharma in the morning and working in the afternoon. Pretty much.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And and you said on retreat you had a regular drawing time.
1: Yeah. I I was in conversation with the teachers about it. So it's it's not a particularly standard thing to be doing on silent retreat but I was really intent on understanding my experience with drawing as it relates to meditation because it felt like a part of life that would benefit from being unified more um, so I would yeah so you know on retreat there's alternating sitting and walking periods often I would draw and in, instead of the walking period
0: So I think that's right. I think that's a good time to have put it in because it's it is sort of engaging with the physical the physical world in a way, Mm -hmm. which I think walking that's a good thing that I like about walking meditation is so focused on the steps and the way your foot feels on the ground, etc. So again, you're engaging with the body and the world. Yeah,
1: like kind of watching, meditating while having more going on in the senses.
0: How long is this retreat that you're about to go on in Colorado?
1: It's three weeks total. There's of a couple of different sections of it and a couple of days in between. So I won't be on silent retreat the whole time, but I'll be there for about three weeks.
0: Yeah, it sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, I'll learn a lot about Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhism, which I'm looking forward to. So there's a lot of relationship to color and form in that. Exactly, a
0: lot of visualization. I understand in in the Vajrayana. So it'd be interesting to hear your experience. Maybe you'll come back on in a month or two after I've got some more on under my belt here and do another episode. (laughs) That
1: would be fun. Yeah. Yeah, we can. Want to hear me ramble with you as you?
0: Yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I I just try to find every area where there's this kind of overlap and see how imagery and and physical practice is being Mm -hmm. used.
1: That's, it's not something that we're doing in this retreat, but the teacher, Tsulcha Malione teaches a practice based on the Tibetan Chud tradition that it, you visualize. I understand it It kind of relates to the hindrances, the, the way they're taught in Vipassana, but you visualize a tension into um, a form that has hands and feet and a sh- face and shape and mm. eyes. And then sometimes she has people draw it. So that's one way. That's, that's something that awesome. happens in her practice. Yeah,
0: I have to check that out.
1: The retreat, yeah, in, in practice, they're kind of getting a broad perspective, broader perspective of different Buddhist traditions is something I'm looking forward to. In drawing, moving forward, I'll be playing with drawing, uh, taking form from sketching and drawing the world around me instead of sort of establishing patterns on the page.
0: So that's cool. Yeah, I take about 2 or 3 weeks out of the year to do what I call representational drawing mm-hmm. or realistic drawing as just as a as a practice, as an exercise and really force myself back into that deep looking and concentrated looking and flattening space and really using my eyes that way and it's really useful. Yeah.
1: It's oh, it's really fascinating. It's. it's also a great opportunity to like maintain lightness and playfulness because you know, just letting go of trying to represent everything perfectly and allowing the medium to do what it does.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to approach it. Because usually very tedious for me, but I still enjoy it. But yeah, I have that tendency uh, to. <laughs> now, at the end, I, I like to ask about the source of creativity and like your where your motivation, where your inspiration and all that, if you've turned your attention to that and if you have any thoughts about where that comes from.
1: Where the source... An inspiration for creativity comes from
0: yeah, or just your own your own energy for making drawings or for your own intellectual pursuits.
1: The first thing that comes to mind is um, preserving or maintaining a a very playful curiosity about the world or human beings, and whether that means usually it means creating ways to to get out of the way and let things let things unfold.
0: I love that. Okay, cool. Terrific. We'll look forward to talking to you again when you're back from a tree. Great.
1: I'll be in touch. Look forward to hearing future episodes.
0: So there you have it. My discussion with Laura Vitale. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for staying around. Thanks for your support of this podcast. Join us on Drawing Your Own Path Facebook group, Instagram, or on DrawingYourOwnPath.com. Hope to gather a big community of creative contemplatives, and I hope you're part of it. Thank you for your support, and take care.